in the truth. Your word is truth. Father in heaven, thank you indeed for your word, which opens our eyes to see who you are, which show us the way in which we are to live, which guides us into the truth. And Father, we pray that as we are guided into the truth, that you would sanctify us, you would set us apart for your glory. You would shape and change our hearts so that it is more and more looking like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, amen. All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, where we'll look at verses 27 and read through chapter 4. It's a passage that we were scheduled to look at last week, but I want to thank my friend, Mr. Allen, Pastor Allen, for stepping in for me the last minute. Kind of woke up, uh, I guess it was Saturday morning, just this little bitty uh, feeling in my throat, wasn't quite sure if it was going to mouth anything, so I called Alan and said, hey, you got something in your back pocket? Which I figured he did, because you've been preaching out in all these churches. He said, yeah, I think I can do it. Still wasn't sure if I needed it, but by Saturday afternoon, it was just worse and worse, and by Sunday morning, I could, I could hardly stand it. And then Sunday night, I couldn't sleep at all. It was so much pain. Went to the doctor's Monday morning. She prescribed me some steroids and antibiotics, and within an hour... Within an hour of taking that pill, my throat opened up and it was like, oh, it's nothing. I, that is a magic pill. <laughs> Man. Anyway, we have something far greater than magic before us this morning. We have the Word of God. And this is from Romans chapter 3. It is, I would ordinarily ask you to stand as we honor God's Word, but if you just honor it as you say seated, just because it's so long... Uh, So beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 27 through chapter 4. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose 
was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives lives to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. There's a lot there, and there's so many verses that we could just stop and camp on, but I'd rather just kind of catch, catch the large gist of what he's talking about. And of course, he's talking about faith. He's building on where he had left off at the conclusion of that section in chapter 3, as, as Paul is you know, unpacking his dissertation about how uh, about what the gospel is and how the gospel comes about, that the righteousness of God, God comes by faith. And now he's addressing that, because that, that is a, a difficult concept for us really to accept, if you think about it. It's not that we don't conceptually understand it. I think we do. And especially if you're here this morning, you probably are, are familiar with some of the Reformed tradition, which wants to champion, you know, grace alone we are saved, by faith alone we are saved. So these are not foreign ideas to you. But the idea of accepting it, that is a bit more difficult than understanding it, if that makes any sense. We have this notion of fairness about us, and we don't like it when things are, seem to come about in a fair way. I, I asked Dunning this morning if I could share a story he would tell us about his high school. When he was in high school, he'd come back after being assigned a group project, and he would get rather frustrated because as you know, if you've been in school and you remember those group projects, there are some who are hard workers and some who are diligent and some who aren't so hard workers. And for those who are the hard workers, who are dependent upon the ones to do their part who are not the hard workers, it's quite frustrating. And if you're a go-getter enough, sometimes you'll just take up the whole thing and say, forget it, I'm just going to do it all because I don't want my grade to suffer as a result of their, their lackadaisicalness. And Dunning was on the hard side worker, and he would get quite frustrated with the, the lack of hard side workers and say, this just isn't fair, that they get the same grade I did, and they did no work, and I did it all. 
And it was making me think of, hmm, I think there's a parable like that. <laughs> or two, <laughs> or three. The parable, of course, about the vineyards, the workers in the vineyards who, you know, at the beginning of, beginning of the day, some are collected to come and work in the vineyard, agreeing to work for one day's labor. That's the, you know, that's the normal rate. And then, of course, the, the master goes back at each hour of the day and gets more workers. And so, even at the very last hour of the day, he gets workers. And when the day is ended and it comes time to pay the workers, he comes to the one who are hired last, first, and he pays them a day's wages. And, of course, the ones who are at the other end of the line who've been working all day are thinking, wow, that looks awesome. If, if it all works out, then I'm going to get a lot of money. And, of course, it comes down to their turn and they get the exact same thing. And they're frustrated and they're angry and say, what? that's just not fair. And the owner of the vineyard says, is it not, do I not have the right to do with my money whatever I wish? You got exactly what you agreed to work with. You got what was fair. So why are you complaining about my graciousness? You see, it is ingrained in us that we want life to be fair. And when you think that righteousness or the justification of God comes by faith, well, that doesn't seem fair at all. It's just not fair. There's another parable that's quite familiar to most of you. It's, a, it's often titled The Prodigal Son, where you have the older son and the younger son, and the younger son comes to his father and says, give me my inheritance. And the father, of course, being who should be offended by such a statement, uh, gives in to his whims and gives him his share of the inheritance. The younger son goes off, squanders it in living that he shouldn't be squandering about, and runs out of money to the point of desperation where he finds himself you know, working as a pig farmer, longing to eat the pods that the pigs themselves are eating. And he thinks, even the servants of my father's house do well, better than me. I'll go back and ask my father if I can come back as a servant. But as soon as his father sees him, he runs to him, grabs him around the neck, hugs him, calls for the, the fatted calf to be slaughtered so that a feast can be had, takes off his robe, puts it on him, gives him his signet ring, puts sandals on his feet, and welcomes us as his son back. And if the older son who's watching all this happen, thinking, it's just not fair. It's not fair that he should be welcomed back and treated as family when he's done all this squalid and terrible living, when I myself have sought to remain faithful and do everything I can for my father. Well, that's, it. that's exactly what Paul is trying to deal with here in this chapter, this idea uh, that they're, he's writing to a church that's now a mixture of two different peoples, a mixture of those who are Jewish by heritage and who have who've all their life perhaps grown up hearing about the law, trying to live a faithful life, trying to be separate from the other nations, the other peoples, the Gentiles. And now we have people who are not from a Jewish heritage, the Gentiles, and they're also part of this church. And you can imagine that there's some in the church that are looking at these other people in the church thinking the same kinds of things. It's not fair that you're here. How can this possibly be? And Paul's addressing that. He's saying, look, I want you to know what the gospel is. It is, of course, the power of God for salvation, but it's for all who have faith, all who believe. It is for the Jew first. You guys got the word first. It was meant to be for you to have faith first, but it was always intended to also be extended to all the nations. It was always meant to come to those not as a result of fairness, but as a result of grace. And so it's for all who have faith. And I know that's a struggle because you want so much for all the work that you've done to this point to count for something. 
I mean, you think that you have a reason to boast. That's why it begins, where then is boasting if this is really true? If it's really true that it comes by faith and not by somehow keeping the law and trying to live a better life, then where is boasting? Well, there's no place for it. There's absolutely no place for boasting. Now, again, these are statements that we get, we conceptually understand, but at some point in your life, it has to actually click, and you have to get it. And it may not be a point until you get to a point in your life when you're looking at somebody else and you really are feeling a sense that I deserve more than them, and you realize that they have the same privilege as you. And you have to reconcile that. You know, I, I still remember the, the moment in college when, when it finally dawned on me that I didn't have anything uh, of advantage over my fellow deplorable fraternity boy. I was too one of those. And having grown up in the church and thinking about being raised in the faith and having this privilege and always trying to live a a pretty good life, and when I found myself in this place of squalor, as it were, not that they're all like that, but mine was, and I found myself there and I really felt all of a sudden like I had gone from being the older brother who'd always done it right now all of a sudden I was the younger brother. And while I'd heard the idea that the gospel was by grace, that it was only through faith and not because you've lived a good life, that never really registered because I thought I had lived a good life. And so to face the reality, my life wasn't as good as I thought it was, and it wasn't as good as I thought it needed to be, this message all of a sudden became very important. Well, does my work count for something? Because while I wanted it to originally, when I thought I actually had some, now that I'm realizing it's not there, I am so thankful that this is true. That salvation comes by faith and faith alone. Now, he helps us to get there, and he's helping the church to get there because he's going through, he's already gone through, you know, chapters 1 and 2. He's introduced the idea of the gospel. Yes, the gospel is very good news. It's the good news that, that God is rescuing those who need rescuing. It's the power of God for salvation, he says. And what's revealed in the gospel is the righteousness of God and how the righteousness of God isn't your righteousness, it's God's righteousness, and he's revealing it to you for you. And that's very important as he goes on in in chapter 2 and and, and towards the middle of chapter 3, because you are a sinner. And while you may not see yourself as bad as the one particular group, which he kind of sneakily, subtly subtly leads you to see the, the awfulness of the worst type of group, and while you may feel a sense that that's not me, then he brings you back to reality and shows you, well, actually, that is you. You, too, are just as guilty as this group that you just previously condemned. He's bringing you to that point where you are as desperate as every other person to hope that this message of salvation is by faith is really true. So that's where he is in the context of this particular passage. Now he's addressing some of the complaints. Those who are still wanting to hold on, wait a minute, I still, I still want to think there's something to my privilege, something to my past, something to my attempts in my past life to live a good life. So he's trying to to help them by gently prying their fingers off of that by dealing with that objection, dealing with the difficulty of that. And in one sense, 
Paul understood exactly where they were coming from. He knows how hard it is to let go of this past goodness. And he uses himself an example in a couple of places in some of the other letters that he's written to the churches. One of those we read in Philippians chapter 3. Sorry, you know, I got these new glasses. They're more powerful, and I can't see this with the glasses on because it's too far. So I'm going to lower it and try to use it without the glasses. Man, it just stinks getting old, doesn't it? But he was writing to the church in Philippians chapter 3, at least with regard to eyesight. There's other places it's really good about. But I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, he writes. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more than you do, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he knows what his readers are going through. He knows it's hard. It is going to be hard for you to let go of this fact that you feel some sense of worthiness before God. But I'm writing to tell you to let it go. Let it go because justification comes by faith alone. And he's going on, to, and the, perhaps the best illustration that he can give for this is by showing that it's also to be including the Gentile who's in their midst. Now, the Gentile is just a Greek word for uh, the nations. In other words, someone who is not from a Jewish heritage, someone who didn't grow up hearing about God and about His law. So, someone who's never tried to live a good standard that, it, that is required to be in God's presence is now able to receive the same measure of blessing that the Jewish person is receiving. And the fact that they're doing it is maybe the very greatest testimony to the one who's still wrestling with his own goodness to see that. I want you to see that. And I want not only you to see that, but I want to establish it by taking you back to your own Scriptures to show you how this isn't anything new. This was always the case. And so he's going back to talk about Abraham. Not just Abraham, but he also includes David in there to say, look, these fathers of your faith that you've looked to as, your, as the examples to follow, they too receive justification by faith alone. Well, how do we know? Well, he explores Abraham a little bit and, and looks at Abraham and the order of events of how things happen in Abraham's life. Now, circumcision, he mentioned circumcision a lot in this passage, and circumcision is kind of representative of keeping the law. If you are a keeper of the law, then you would get circumcised because God commanded that you would be circumcised if you were a Jewish male. So that's representative of the whole idea of keeping the law when he says that. And he talks about Abraham and asks, well, when was it that Abraham was justified in the eyes of God? When was he declared right, or when was he credited with, the, with righteousness in the eyes of God? Was it before or after he was circumcised, he says? He says it was before, not after. So you see, even the one that you would hold up to be your pinnacle example of the one you would follow was declared right in the eyes of God was credited with righteousness before he ever kept God's law. That's the idea. In fact, you could even push it a little bit further to say that the reason that he was given circumcision was because of that faith, because faith came first. God's promise always comes before faith and obedience to the law. 
So we hear, here we have that example. And he wants them, he does, he does hint at the question that's going to creep up in their mind in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. He doesn't really go on yet to explain how exactly he upholds the law, but he's going to get there a little bit later in Romans. Right now, he's just to say, look, I know this is an objection that you're, you're feeling a little bit, and we're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with the place of the law, and it's important uh, uh, later on. But right now, you have to understand the fact that, you're, that you are credited with righteousness only through faith, and the faith yourself is not something to boast about. You are credited with the righteousness of God that you had nothing at all to contribute to achieving. That's the message here. It is by faith alone you are saved. In other words, you could say it in a kind of a, kind of a, a blunt way, it doesn't matter what your history has been. It doesn't matter how successful you've been in trying to live a good life or how deplorable your life has been in the past. One summer, I went on a, a mission project with a group of college students, and we were in this little beach town, and our job was to go in the community, find a local job. Uh, my job was at a, a Wendy's flipping hamburgers. And then, of course, on the weekends, we'd go on the beach and try to talk to people. But the whole time, whether it was developing friendships with people we worked with or when we went to the beach, we were trying to strike up conversations with people to talk about the gospel. And uh, I still remember one of my coworkers at Wendy's, you know, she would, we would, she would, of course, knew why we were there. And if, when you tell them why we're there, oh, I'm here for a mission project, you know, with the, with the church group. She's like, oh, yeah, what's that all about? Well, it kind of invites you to talk about uh, the gospel. And, and uh, over the course of the summer, talking with this girl about the gospel. And uh, she was, uh, the, one of the tools that we used was their outline, the four spiritual laws. And the last one has to do with this, this idea of faith. That it's through faith, through faith, through faith. And she asked the question, so it doesn't matter what you do? And now that's kind of a loaded question. It can be a loaded question. But in essence, with this idea, it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. Now, we, we should say it doesn't matter what you did, uh, because, of course, faith translates into a particular doing. But for the sake of understanding how does the righteousness of God come to you, she's absolutely right. It doesn't matter what you do, because it is not one iota built upon your works. So that's the argument that Paul is building in this, in this letter, that faith is the instrument through which righteousness comes. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit just about some implications just to apply this home a little bit. Because you can go read it. You can dig down deeper if you want to get into the theological nitty-gritty of the, of the chapter. But, but for you to have faith, because faith itself is something that I don't know if we fully recognize what even that means or how do we get it. Because we have faith in all kinds of things. And, and by the way, when it comes to justification of God or the righteousness of God coming to you through the avenue of faith rather than the avenue of works, whether you think it's works or, or, or by faith or by grace, you still have faith. It just depends on what your faith is actually in. Is your faith in God and the righteousness that He's achieved, or is your faith in your own works, in your own goodness, in your own ability to have lived a good life? So, so faith 
is still there even when you think about your works contributing. Your faith is just placed in a different object. So, what does it take for us to put our faith in someone or in something? And I would suggest to you there's kind of two things that help that we can, I think that we can readily grasp the things that we will put our faith into. And one is we tend to believe something, something excuse me, uh, because we want to believe it. Have you ever been there? You heard, you've seen people, we, want to, we believe something simply because we want to believe something. When something is presented to you that that's, that's, just sounds fantastic and it's something you desperately find yourself wanting, well, often that's enough for you to believe it. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? I mean, this is what advertisers bank on, isn't it? They present to something that this is what you need, this is something that's so good, and they're expecting you to believe them simply because they presented you with something that you so desperately want to be true. And so we, so we invest in that. I mean, think about how often people will go buy the, the, uh, the lottery tickets and the scratch tickets. It's not because lottery tickets themselves are trustworthy. It's because they so much want it to be true, this idea that they could win the jackpot. So we get that idea. And it's something that actually we need to accept because the same thing is true with the gospel, by the way. The gospel is something that is so good, we want it to be true. And I think for a lot of people, even in the church, we don't really get that. We haven't gotten to the point where we see the good news as good news or as the greatest news. We don't necessarily see it as something that's so great and desperate, and therefore we don't really pursue it with faith. So I think that is a necessity, by the way. And Jesus uses this in some parables too in Matthew chapter 13. Some of the parables of the kingdom. For example, in verse 44 of that chapter, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So he's talking about this notion that the kingdom of God, that which is coming to us through the gospel, is such a treasure that we need to see it as a treasure that in theory, it should be worth giving everything else up if that was required to gain it. Now, I don't think his message necessarily is specific that we need to give up all we had, although there is part of that, you could explore that. But the idea is that this is such a great treasure that the only logical thing in our mind to do is to believe it is true and to desperately grasp hold of it. So it may be this morning that in your faith pursuit, understanding that the righteousness of God comes through faith, you just haven't yet grasped how important and great that is. And maybe that's where you need to be exploring. Do I really see this gospel, that God's righteousness belongs to me, as something that I want to give up anything else in the world to to have? I mean, by the way, in that passage in Philippians 3, that's that's what Paul was saying. He's saying, look, I finally get it. I count everything else a loss that I might know Christ. 
I count everything else as, he says, rubbish, or some translation would say dung, that I might know Christ. You see, to believe something in such a way that it's going to affect the way that you live and the direction that you take in life, you have to see, you have to want to believe it. You have to see it's worth believing. So that's the first thing about the gospel that Paul is revealing that's implied here about this faith. You want to believe this gospel is true? You have to really understand how good it is. Now, that's not enough, however. It's not enough to just believe something because we want to believe it. Because there's a lot of things out there that we want to believe that we really shouldn't believe that we would go after, that do, in fact, end up changing our life. I'll give you one example that's, that's kind of relevant to me, if you know me. You, uh, Alan, I know you like to refer to yourself sometimes as, as, as cheap. I'm cheap too. I don't know if I'd, I'd put it more thrifty. That's the positive spin on it, right? But but we're that way, and there's a reason for that. You know, we got to make our dollars go as stretch as far as they can. So when it comes time to trying to buy a car, which has always cost a lot of money, I'm always driven to try to find what I would consider. I, I I want to say good deal, but really what I'm looking for is a cheap deal. I'm looking for something cheap, and so as I look for cars over the years, and I've for the last ten years trying to find cars to help with our kids and all that stuff. The cars that fall, up, fall on your radar when you're looking for cheap are often uh, come with salvage titles. Now, if you don't know what a salvage title is, probably most of you don't. I'm very familiar with them. Uh, salvage title is a car that's been declared a total loss by an insurance company. And they'll declare a car a total loss by an insurance company because something has happened to it that's going to require more dollars to repair than the 60% of the car's value. I think, that's the, I think that's how it is, something like that. So if a car has been wrecked or it's been flooded or something, and it's going to, re, if it, in a dealership, a proper dealership is going to uh, require more than 60% of the current value of that car to repair it up to its kind of new light condition, then they'll just write it off as a loss and it gets written as a salvage title. And often they'll go to the auctions and you'll have these guys who are, you know, as a, take it as a business, they'll, they'll buy these cars They'll put them through their, through their, uh, their fix-it shops, and, and some are good and some are not, and try to get it to a place where it looks really good and then offer it back for sale uh, to buyers at a much cheaper price. So, you know, as me, as I'm looking for these deals and I see this cheap car, and it's the kind of car I've been looking for, and I realize, oh, man, this is going to save me thousands of dollars, and I have this car with low mileage, it's just a, a deal that's so good, I can't pass up. And so I, I want so much to believe it's true that that allows you to kind of overlook any particular, particular concerns, you know, that might be going along with that. Because you just want it so much to be true. But the problem is, there's a whole lot of things that might blow up in your face with that. And while it may have been cheap at first, it's not cheap in the end. And so you have to have more than just this idea that you want it to believe, believe it to be true. Because most of the things out there that when you say they're too good to be true, well, they are too good to be true. So how do you move past the, well, this is too good to be true, but it really is true. How do you get to that point? Well, you have to know more than just it's something that I want. You have to know that the source to which I'm finding out about this is actually trustworthy. 
There's a track record there. There's a demonstrable proof and evidence that, yes, it is what, it's, what it seems to be. It really is what it seems to be. I mean, the, the summary is that's exactly what we have in the gospel. The gospel we have to see is something that is too good to be true, and yet it is true. How do we know it's true? Because we have centuries and centuries of testimony from God Himself developing His track record to show how He fulfills His promises. And in the time of Jesus Christ, the time He's writing this letter, He has brought His fulfillment to these promises in their presence. And Paul is a, as a, as a witness to that. So there's ample evidence of the fact that what I'm telling you that seems too good to be true, it really is true, and you can trust me. Let me tell you, look, experience with these cars again, too, just so you remember this. You know, because I've bought several salvage vehicles over the years, and I've learned the hardware that you, the hard way that you do have to trust. You have to learn to trust the person. The person that's, that's proposing the goods is very important. Because as I come across most of the salvage cars now, if they, if they can't tell you anything about the history of the car, there's no track record, then I've learned really quickly, you walk away, you don't ever talk to them again. You run, in fact. Uh, but if you can find out if these people are transparent and they tell you about the history, if you can find out that they've done this before, that they have lots of customers in their past that have received the work that they've done and they've held up over the years, they've proved themselves to be, to be worthy, well, then you know, oh, it sounds too good to be true, but I'm looking at the source, and I'm seeing they themselves are trustworthy. Well, now that's going to change the way I act. I'm going to take my money, and I'm going to give it to that person. Because it's two things. It is, one, so good I want it to be true, and two, it's coming to me from a source I can, I've learned I can trust. And that's the gospel, and that's what faith, that's the kind of faith that's going to affect the way that you live. And that's what Paul is writing about. He says, look, the righteousness of God is meant to be for you, and it's coming to you through faith. But this faith is not meant to be something that has no impact on your life. It's meant to have a great impact on your life. So the question to you this morning, before we explore the rest of how this all works, is what does your faith look like? What does your faith look like? Is it driving you in a particular direction because you see what it is offering is so good? And do you believe the one telling you enough that you're willing to take those steps of faith? Now, maybe we don't know exactly where that's taking us, what it looks like, and Paul's going to tell us in the coming chapters. But for now, the question is, what does your faith look like? And in what is your faith? For Paul is inviting us to put our faith squarely in the work that Jesus Christ has done so that His righteousness might be credited to our account so that God's wrath, which would ordinarily be due us, is satisfied in the death of Christ and the life of Christ is credited to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the continuing unpacking of the gospel that Paul does in this book. We're grateful that He challenges us 
to approach you with faith. Faith in your promise, faith in what you've accomplished, faith in the work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Not only to take away our guilt and satisfy your wrath, but also to give us his righteousness. Lord, would you allow that to be such great news in our minds that we are driven towards it, knowing that you are a trustworthy source and that it is indeed true. Help us to walk in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.